You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Luke 5, 33 through 6, 16. And they said to him, the disciples of John, fast often and offer prayers, and so did the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Uh, These days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, what are you doing? It's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And Jesus answered, have you not read what David did while he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone but the priest to eat. And also he gave it to those with him. And he said to them, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around them, All he said to them, stretch out your hand, and he did, and so his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose them from the twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, the Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, to the great one in three, we pray these things to you now, our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you would be with us now, that you would help us to understand your word, that you would use it to make us more and more uh, disciples of Jesus, people conformed to his image and who are excited and willing and able to follow him. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Tonight is a lower elementary week, so if you already have a sticker on and you want to head out and keep thinking through these stories together. We'll miss you guys. See you in a few minutes. It's good to see you all this evening. Uh, 
we're going to walk out of here in a little bit and go watch one of the most anticipated three to four hours of television of the year, three to four hours of new commercials interrupted from time to time with a football game. Uh, And depending on the placement of a commercial or an ad during the game, this year a 30-second ad is going for about six to seven million dollars. We'll let Eric or Dave uh, lead a core class sometime on telling us if that's worth it or not. Uh, But one trick that advertisers often use is appealing to either side of a time spectrum. Uh, On this side, there might be an appeal to tradition that old things are better things. So anything that says like, since 1892, we've been giving you quality or something, or for five generations, or just like grandma used to make it. Uh, We're trying to say that the old things are better things. Wouldn't it be better if we could buy the things that were made then? But on the flip side, is you, uh, that is often used as like an appeal to novelty, an appeal to newness, that new is always better. While grandma was the hero of this tradition, uh, I have definitely seen churches who advertise themselves as not your grandmother's church, uh, as if that's a good thing. Uh, we are the newer and hipper and cooler place to be. And while tradition is great, we Americans tend to really, really like things that are new and improved. Uh, While we can't uh, wait for everything, uh, we really do like things to be for, be like uh, Tomorrowland at Disneyland. We like living in the future now. And again, new is often awesome. Last year, when I was in England in July, uh, for like 24 hours, it got up to 103 degrees. Uh, and like the only place that I could find that had any air conditioning was a Starbucks. I told some of you that uh, everything being centuries old in England is really charming and wonderful until it's not. Uh, Well, uh, our text today in Luke 5 and 6 is about new and old. Which is better? Is one better? We've seen a new movement of God in the arrival of the Messiah in the first five chapters of the Gospel of Luke, but nothing like what we are seeing here today. We're going to see Jesus bring new things to old things because of actually who he is. Not just the things that he's doing, but who he is. Not necessarily because new is always better. There are old things that are good. But when old is actually designed to expire, when old has an expiration date, when there is, you know this phrase, when there is planned obsolescence, when something is designed to become obsolete, to reach its expiration date, well then yes, the new is better when this thing expires. And so we're going to see Jesus bring two new things here. Our two headings in this text tonight is going to be that Jesus brings a new fast and Jesus brings a new Sabbath. He is doing something really, really remarkable in the text that you just heard Maggie read. So let's get after it. First of all, Jesus brings a new fast. Immediately after we saw last week, the Pharisees get upset at Jesus for going to a party with, quote, tax collectors and sinners. Now they come to him with this. In verse 33 of chapter 5, they said to him, the disciples of John, John the Baptist that is, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours, Jesus, they eat and drink. So they're coming at Jesus through his disciples. They've got a beef with Jesus, but they're coming through his disciples. Your disciples are doing this, so what does this say about you as their teacher if you are producing such immature disciples, such ungodly disciples? And what are they actually accusing him of? 
They say that disciples of John and disciples of the Pharisees, they fast and often offer prayers, but Jesus' disciples, they eat and drink. Now, this can't mean that Jesus is against fasting, that Jesus is against offering prayers, personally himself or for his followers. We know this because Jesus is constantly removing himself in order to pray, even sometimes to fast, as we saw him do for 40 days in the wilderness. At the end of this section that you heard Maggie just read, he, he basically goes up to a mountain for a all-night Uh, prayer session. So he's not against praying and fasting. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, when you pray and when you fast, not if you pray or if you fast. Jesus seems to have an expectation that his people will pray and fast. So if that's the case, what are these people, what are these Pharisees accusing him of? Now, there are many regular fast days in the life of Israel. So many days set aside in the national calendar for remembrance, for mourning. There was an annual 25-hour fast from all food and drink to remember the day that the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. There was another fast period of three days. Uh, It was called the Fast of Esther, which was like a a sun-up to sun-down fast for three days, much like Ramadan is currently for Muslims. This was to remember Esther's three-day fast for deliverance. Another 25-hour fast from sundown to sundown at Yom Kippur, the, the Day of Atonement, and many others like it. The Pharisees themselves would fast every Monday and every Thursday, two fast days per week. Why would they do that? Why would these fast days be set aside in the national calendar? Why would the Pharisees fast like this so regularly? What is fasting and why would people do it? Fasting is, in its best forms, a way to deny yourself of one thing to then focus or receive another thing. It's a way to remind yourself of your need and of your ultimate dependence on God. In these first century fasts, the people fasted and prayed. These things went together. I think the Pharisees are putting these things together in their accusation that John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples, they fast often and offer prayers. Those things are a package deal, two sides of the same coin. The people fasted and prayed, praying for God's mercy on the people, praying for God's action once again, for God to once again come, for him to act, for him to move, for him to return to his people. And so Jesus' response to them is this. If you are fasting to pray for God's mercy, to pray for God's action, what if God's mercy and God's action is here now? And this is something that you don't need to actually pray for because it has arrived. Should you keep fasting and asking for that which is already here? And so he says in verse 34, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? We'll see Jesus tell parables about a wedding feast later in Luke 14. But before an actual wedding, there was a long time of of preparation, of waiting, of waiting for the bridegroom, for the groom to go away and to have finally prepared a house for he and his bride to live in. And when that was completed, now that was the time for the wedding. It wasn't like both families like got together and found a venue and picked a date that they most wanted and sent out to save the date. No, the date happened when the when the place, the, the place to live was ready. Then the groom would return for his bride for the wedding and a seven-day feast of celebration. Jesus is saying that it would make no sense, zero sense, 
for there to be a community-wide celebration where finally the groom has come to be with his bride, and then for you to be part of that community, to be part of this seven-day celebration, but you to remove yourself, for you to abstain from the celebration, to say, no, I am not eating or drinking right now in this community celebration because I am a very serious person, because I want something greater than what we are all experiencing now. Jesus is saying, no, no, if the groom is here with his bride and there is a celebration happening, then go and be with the people. Enjoy, the, enjoy your life. Enjoy the gift that God has brought. Celebrate. Thank God. Celebrate with and for the bride and the groom. Jesus is saying, all of that is happening now. The groom is here for his bride, so let's party. But then, with the first and ominous hint of what's to come, he says this in verse 35, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days, meaning they, his disciples. His disciples will once again fast in those days. The groom will not always live and enjoy close proximity in this physical way here with his bride forever. Things will change, and in those days it will be appropriate once again to fast. But that, actually, this future day is not his point now. He goes on to further explain what's happening here. He tells of three things that no one, quote, no one does. No one does three different things. In verse 36, he says, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Verse 37, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. And in verse 39, no one, after drinking old wine, desires new wine. Why doesn't anyone do these things? What's his point? What's he trying to say in saying all these things that no one does? Well, the new garment thing he's saying is like if you have some old jeans and you've got these old jeans and they've got holes in the knees, you could go to Hobby Lobby and buy one of those like iron-on patches or you could go to a thrift store and buy some old jeans of similar color there and cut out an old patch from the old jeans and put those on the holy knees of your favorite jeans. But it would be pretty weird to go and buy new jeans, to spend 30 or 50 or 80 or $100 on new jeans, and then take those new jeans home and cut out a tiny patch from the new jeans and put them on the old jeans. Just throw the old jeans out and start wearing the new jeans that you just bought. The only reason you do this is if you were more committed to the old jeans. And I think all of us have a pair of old jeans that we really like and we don't want to give up on, but we are committed to those things, the old jeans, rather than the new jeans. In the same way, in these days, the way that you would ferment or make wine, you'd smash all the grapes down and then you would put the wine into a, a wineskin, a, a bladdered bag, probably from an organ of a lamb or some other animal, and it becomes wine in there. It ferments in there. Uh, the, the, the bag expands with the wine. The chemical properties of the whole thing, bag, wineskin, and wine, begin to work and interact together. You do this for each new batch of wine. If you start refilling these old used wineskins with new batches, the, new, or the old wineskin will wear out, and it has already been stretched in a way that this new one is supposed to. It will finally burst. You can almost imagine Jesus' hearers hearing him talk about new wine in old wineskins, and they'd be like, oh, no, don't do that. Like, don't do that. They will be, oh, what a waste. Oh, man, this good wine is now just all over. 
use new things for new things. Otherwise, both the new thing and the old thing that you're trying to smash together will be ruined. If I were preaching this sermon in 1999, I'd say, how stupid it would, it, would it be to put your DVDs in the VCR? Some of you don't even know what a VCR is, but why would you do this? You would put a DVD that can get scratched. You're going to scratch the DVD, and if you try to push it down, you might ruin the VCR. You might ruin both things. But since it's 2023, it's like trying to use a, a cable to plug in your phone to like a smart device, like to an Alexa or to like a smart thermostat or, thermostat or something. Some things that maybe don't even have an input cable on. And you like smash a hole into a smart thermostat that has no input with a cable. You're going to ruin both things. The phone, the cable, the thermostat. Use new things for new things. Don't keep trying to use old technology with the new things. What a waste. And then last thing here, he says, no one, after drinking old wine, deserves or desires new wine. For he says, the old is good. This is what the person who is drinking and is used to the old wine says. I don't like the new wine. I'm used to, my taste is uh, conditioned for the old wine. So while it's true that a well-made wine actually gets better with age, Jesus isn't really making that point here. He's putting his emphasis on the drinker. The person who is used to something, who has gotten into a rut with something, the person who has developed a taste for that something, no matter the quality of the new thing. And not to mention that while wine can age if it's expertly made, like in a glass bottle or something, and is not releasing anything, this is not that in an old wineskin. The wine absolutely has an expiration date, and when the wine goes bad, it quickly goes bad. So who, Jesus is saying, who uh, gets used to an old kind of gross wine, but then says of the new wine, no, that, that doesn't sound good. No one says that. You want the new wine. So what Jesus is saying in all three of these parables is that something new is happening here. He is in the beginning stages of preparing the institution of a new covenant, a new covenant with a new wine the old covenant symbol of judgment and wrath being poured out by God. Now, the old covenant sign and symbol of wine being wrath, now wine becomes the new covenant symbol of judgment and wrath absorbed by God himself in the God-man Jesus Christ, that he might then welcome us into remembrance, that he might forgive sins, that he might cleanse eternally, not merely externally in the old ways that he might give his spirit, that he might write his law of love on people's hearts, not merely on uh, stone tablets as before in the old ways, that he might include a people in saving covenant with himself, not because of their ethnic first birth, but because of their spiritual second birth, that his people might all know God and worship rightly in spirit and in truth. This is a new, for lack of a better word, a new technology that he is instituting here, a new way of not only thinking, but of being, a new way of knowing God. And remember, Luke is Luke part one. The gospel according to Luke is Luke part one, and Acts, as we know, we might say is Luke part two. We very much should think of Luke-Acts as Luke part one and Luke part two. And Luke is going to show how difficult it was for God's people in the book of Acts in Luke part two to stop putting DVDs in the VCR, to stop trying to go back to the old ways. God had to show Peter a heavenly vision of a blanket full of bacon. Remember that? We were going through Acts 10 a few 
years ago of pigs in a blanket so that Peter, these pigs, unclean animals coming down from the heavens so that Peter would finally understand that God had, some, had done something very, very new in Jesus, in the person in work of Jesus, that the dietary laws of the Old Testament, the ceremonial laws of purity, of cleanness and uncleanness have reached their date of planned obsolescence, of expiration, because Jesus has now finally made all things new. That the law, Moses, as we've said before, served a very, very good purpose, but now Moses has retired. Moses is out on the beach with sunscreen on his nose and sunglasses on, sipping Mai Tais for the rest of his days because his work is done and Moses, the law, is retired. Jesus has come and fulfilled it all. Now, if you just recently started visiting with us, you might find sermons from Acts 10 or Acts 15 helpful. These were from February and March of 2021 on the podcast feed or on the website, or even 10 sermons on the Ten Commandments, uh, and one more on the whole of the law in Exodus back in the fall of 2019. We've thought about the law a lot here together, so we're not going to spend a ton more time here tonight. But for now, Jesus is setting up here this, this new covenant that he is bringing, and he is, he is warning those who like old things just because they're old just because that's the way that we have done them. Those who easily buy into the appeal to tradition, that that is what we do and that is actually preferable because that's what we have always done. Even when the way that we do it is reaching its expiration, it will quickly spoil. Even when the new thing has made the old way obsolete, like, no, I refuse to get a smartphone. I refuse to even get a dumb phone. I we'll still just have a pager. Thank you very much. And if you would like to get a hold of me, you can page me and I will find a payphone that I can call you back on. That's essentially the life in which the Pharisees are wanting to live in, to remain in the old ways, even though new technology, new covenant has made the old ways obsolete. The new has come and the page of all of history the history of God's movement towards his people, the history of God's salvation of his people is turning over all of these people right here, right now. And yet, what about fasting? Should they not fast? Jesus says in these days, no, but should his disciples always not fast? Remember, when you fast, Jesus says, he's just trying to say uh, here that it is good and right in these days for his disciples to not fast on perhaps Mondays or Thursdays for them to not fast, for God to act when God is there with them. But these days are not those days where we have physical, proximal Jesus walking with us. Now, these days is actually better than those days. It is better to have God within us by his spirit than God beside us in the person of Jesus. But we again now find ourselves in a position in time where we look forward to the bridegroom coming once again for the bridegroom to once again and bring a full and final wedding feast. We are in the time between the times. It is good and right for us to long for God to move and act again. So can I encourage us, not guilt you or force you, but can I encourage you to perhaps take a day this week, uh, even perhaps even a sun up to sundown fast, a, a, a breakfast and lunch fast, to fast for the M's, to fast for the B's. Uh, the, the, the B's are uh, about to move out next month. 
next month to join the M's in a place and a world of uncertainty, the place in the world that you just heard Kyle pray for, not just because of natural disasters, but because of questions about residency, occupation. The M's landlords came to them on Friday, knocked on the door and said, we've decided that we would like to live in this place that we own, that you are currently living in, so you need to get out. Uh, even though there is a contract signed and a lease agreement agreed to. And so there is just so much going on right now of uncertainty. We don't think it's unwise for the bees to go join the M's next month. Uh, We have had lots of conversations about all the contingencies and all of the options, but we are very, very excited to send them next month. So would you consider skipping a breakfast and a lunch? this week. I'm going to do this on Thursday, if you want to join me. Not to manipulate God into what we want him to do, but because we want to want what God wants. We want to remind ourselves of the need in that place that the bees are about to join the M's in. To remind ourselves of the need that they will have as families together working for the sake of the gospel, of the great, great need of the families and the people that they will be ministering to, to remind ourselves to pray, to build into our schedules reminders to pray, to be filled and satisfied, not with a burger, but with the goodness of God. Of every time that day, perhaps Thursday, every time that you feel that pang of hunger, to remember to pray, every time. Help me to pray and help me to remember to pray. This is what good or what fasting, the good that fasting can bring. So Jesus has indeed brought a new fast, a fast of expectation and joy because he has come once, he will come again. And yet fasting is a way to, as one person has written, to not spoil our appetite for the final and full wedding feast. You know what it means to spoil your appetite before dinner. We don't want to do that. We want to cultivate in us a sense, a growing sense of expectation and longing, a growing sense of wanting full and final satisfaction. So would you join us in this, perhaps even this Thursday, in just praying of removing one physical comfort and filling to be, that we might be filled spiritually by the Lord. So Jesus brings a new fast. But now secondly, he brings a new Sabbath. Luke gives us here two stories of Jesus doing things on the Sabbath, on Saturday, the last day of the week. In the first story, he and his disciples are cutting through a field, and they grab a few heads of grain as they're walking in their hands, and they rub in their hands the grain to eat them. Kind of like, I mean, I mean, it's a little different kind of thing, but kind of like if you just grabbed a couple of sunflower seeds. That's the kind of snack that they're getting just a tiny little bit to eat. The Pharisees, who are apparently following Jesus very closely, might even say spying on Jesus, just waiting for he or his disciples to slip up in some way to accuse him or to accuse them of breaking the Sabbath. And according to tradition that had formed and hardened by Jesus's time, the Pharisees may have held to a traditional understanding of keeping the Sabbath of regulations that prohibited at least four things— that perhaps Jesus and his disciples, they could accuse them of breaking. They could have accused them of reaping, of gathering in wheat. They could have uh, accused them of threshing, of 
cutting and separating, of winnowing, even further separating, and then of preparing food. They could have said, you've done all four of these things here by just grabbing and rubbing and eating a little snack. But Jesus reminds them of another time in 1 Samuel 21, when David and his men were on the run from King Saul, and David ate the holy bread, the bread of the presence, which was reserved not for the king, but only for priests. And here's the thing, though, in 1 Samuel, here by Jesus, or really anywhere else in the Bible, either implicitly or explicitly, is David condemned for doing this. We are not led to believe in anywhere in the Bible that David was wrong in taking and eating the bread that was reserved only for the priests. It could be that Jesus is showing that the law was always intended to serve God's people rather than God's people serve the law without wisdom, without compassion. And that's true. In Mark's account of this very same story in Mark 2, Jesus says that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is intended to serve men in how they understand and worship God, not men come to serve the Sabbath. But that idea is more Luke's point in the next Sabbath story that we'll get to in just a second. But the point of Luke's inclusion of this Sabbath story, of the grabbing the grain while they walk, is that David was right to do what he did in 1 Samuel 21 because he was David. He was the anointed king who often and ongoingly acted not just in kingly roles, but in priestly roles as well. That while David was absolutely a sinful man, he can, on the same level of the priests in 1 Samuel 21, David can actually make the call for what is right and wrong. He can make the call for what is clean and unclean and for whom. To which, if the, if the Pharisees are hearing Jesus clearly and understanding Jesus correctly, they might say, okay, we'll grant you that about David. Maybe he had the authority to make that call then. What gives you the right then to compare yourself to David? Who do you think you are? To which then Jesus like pulls the pen and the grenade and rolls it in. In verse 5, he said to them, the son of man is the Lord, the master of the Sabbath. The Son of Man, the second time, now two weeks in a row that we've seen him use this title for himself, he is the master of the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, I get to decide what we should do on the Sabbath. I get to decide what the Sabbath is for. And in fact, I am fundamentally transforming the nature of the Sabbath altogether. So let's use this next Sabbath story to help us understand what he's saying and what the Sabbath is for and how he's transforming it. Again, it seems like now in this second story here, the man with the withered hand and starting in verse six, it seems like the Pharisees are just always slinking behind Jesus, following, watching, spying, just looking for something to accuse him of, to take him down. And note verse seven. The Pharisees are watching Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. They are waiting for him to perform a miracle so that they can accuse him. Now, what is a miracle? 
A miracle is something that shows, that validates, that proves that someone is working on behalf of God. Miracles do not happen naturally, right? Miracles are actually according or not according to nature, by the norms of cause and effects that we can see in the universe. You actually need a being, a power that is above nature, that is outside of nature, that is super nature, supernatural, outside of the norms of cause and effect of nature to cause and to affect a miracle into being. So these people, the Pharisees, are waiting for Jesus to do something that proves that he works on behalf of God so they can accuse him, so they can reject him. This is crazy. This is like the definition of confirmation bias. You know what this is? Confirmation bias is that no matter the evidence, you are so biased, you are so uh, prone to your position, your prior beliefs, that even if something comes to the contrary, that is in contradiction to your prior beliefs, you actually use that contradictory information to further cement what you already believe that is contradictory to that which is crazy, and yet we do it all the time. It's like if you believe like left-handed people are more creative. This is a belief that you have about reality. You'll likely ignore all of the creative right-handed people that you know. And you'll likely ignore all of the uncreative, le- uncreative left-handed people that you see throughout the day. But then when you happen to see a creative left-handed person, ah, there it is. Left-handed people are way more creative. This is just confirmation bias. We all do this with our political candidates that we like. We are quick to highlight the flaws of those we don't like and then justify or explain away the flaws of the candidates that we do like. We look for ways to confirm our biases, our prior beliefs. And so, despite unbelievably compelling evidence that Jesus is the political candidate that ought to now gain their support, he is doing the things that ought to make them leave their prior position to join him to follow him, to become his disciples, these Pharisees and these scribes use this event to instead confirm their bias that Jesus is actually someone to reject. It's irrational, it's sinful, and it is so very human. They are acting in the same way that all humans have always acted, that despite God's good action, despite God's patience, despite God's faithfulness, despite God's glory and beauty, I don't think it's that glorious. Evidence that should get me to change who I, how I think, what I believe, how I act even, actually we use that to cement our further or our prior positions. I don't think he's that trustworthy. I don't think he's that real. Despite everything, I'll just stick with my, stick with my pre-existing biases to reject him to choose myself, to listen to myself, which if we were at all honest with ourselves, we are very unreliable guides. And yet, I'll listen to myself. That sounds like a good plan. But Jesus, just like he did last week with the thoughts of the Pharisees in the crowded house, he knows the thoughts of these Pharisees and scribes as well. And provocatively and intentionally, he pulls another pin from the grenade. He really wants to get under their skin and ruffle their feathers. In front of everyone, he asks 
this man with a withered hand. Uh, we don't quite know what this means. His hand was either crushed or for some reason it was underformed, perhaps for his whole life. Whatever the reason, this is a hand that he cannot use, meaning that he had to, for his entire life, eat one-handed. Do this. Try that for a week and see how difficult that actually is. He couldn't work a plow. He couldn't build a table. His vocational options were very limited. If he had children, he couldn't lift them up, or he got really good at doing it one-handed. If he could read, he could not pick up the scroll and unfold it and unroll it. But now, with this man standing in front of him, Jesus actually doesn't really talk to him. He talks to the Pharisees, and he asks them, is it good for me to heal this man on the Sabbath? Is it good for me to do good on the Sabbath? Presumably, their tradition is that unless this man is in danger of death, then the healing can actually wait. Presumably, saying like, if if you need to go to the doctor now because you're about to die, that's okay. But if you have a scratchy throat, go to the doctor tomorrow on Sunday, the day after the Sabbath. To which Luke tells us, looking around at them, at them, looking around at them, he tells the man, stretch out your hand. Again, not looking at the man. Jesus is compassionate and actually wants to heal him. But it appears his main motive here is a teaching motive. That in addition to being the Lord of the Sabbath, the the person and the master of the Sabbath that gets to decide what is done on the Sabbath, what the Sabbath is for in the first place, he actually here also is the man, the Lord, the master who understands the law of God, who understands that mercy and love is actually the intention of the law, that worship of doing good, loving God and loving neighbor is actually the intention of the Sabbath. The Sabbath had always been intended for rest, for worship, for doing good and living well. But as 21st century Americans, uh, we have an expectation of a weekend so baked into what it means to live a life that we, I don't think we really have categories for this. That not only is it a religious, but it is certainly a cultural or a workplace Uh, expectation that we not only get one day off from work, but that we get two. And in fact, our work weeks are actually so that we can really live our lives. We work so that we can play. We work so that we can rest. We have it baked into our expectations that we will have enough disposable income that we can do just awesome fun things on the weekend. That we can do what we want to do, not that we must work so that we can survive. At Sinai, when God covenanted himself to Israel through Moses, he gave them a covenant sign, a covenant sign called the Sabbath, in order that they would learn to trust him. That like when he gave them manna and told them to only eat what they could gather on that day, only gather what you can gather today. Don't gather a week's worth. Don't even gather two days' worth. I will provide tomorrow as well. Just gather for today. Eat what you need for today. In the same way, the Sabbath, God is giving the Sabbath to the people to say, take a day off, rest, I will provide what you need. You will not starve, I will give you what you need. Set aside this day to worship me, to devote the day to worship and to rest, to use a day to learn to recognize your limits, to grow in your trust in me. 
But instead, by these days, the days of Jesus, the day had become a day, perhaps not a day of rest, but a day of stress. Am I not only keeping the Sabbath, but am I also keeping all of the extra fences that had come about by way of human tradition that can help ensure that I'm keeping the Sabbath? Luke will give us two more Sabbath healings in chapters 13 and 14, so we'll think even more about the Sabbath then and its role for us today. But here, Jesus is again beginning to unfold a new Sabbath for his people. Not one that is marked by only one day per week, but actually a lifetime of rest. The fifth commandment, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, is the only one of the Ten Commandments not reaffirmed in the New Testament. And we see in many places in the New Testament in early church history that Christians clearly began uh, meeting now for Christian worship, not on the Sabbath day, on Saturday, but now on the Lord's day, on the Sunday, the resurrection day. Just as God rested from his work in creation on the seventh day in Genesis 1, then his later people picked that up as an analog for what he did in his first work week. Here, similarly, Jesus brought a day of rest on the eighth day of creation, we might call it. A new creation of a new people. Jesus is doing here. He is bringing a new kingdom, a new covenant, a new world order in which he and his people can live in in rest. Which is exactly Luke's point in including the naming of the 12 apostles in verses 12 through 16. We'll get back to the Sabbath in just a second, but why are there 12? That's a good round number, I guess. But why 12? What what do we know about 12? Jesus here is reforming, reconstituting, remaking a new Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel, a new people formed under a new covenant, not of Abraham, not of Isaac, not of Jacob, but of himself. All of those things are pointing, preparing, shadows of what he, what he is doing here. They were good, they've just reached their expiration. So while it is good and right for us to gather here for worship every Sunday, I don't believe that Christians today are required to keep the Sabbath on the Sunday as a new Christian Sabbath. The Sabbath was actually, in the old days, a shadow of the substance of Jesus. It is something that looked very similar to the substance of the real thing. And yet at the same time, I do think it's principally wise to rest, especially as workaholic Americans. To keep Sundays, to keep this day, the Lord's day, as a day that is free from have-tos. You know what I mean? Like, I have to get this work done on Sunday. I have to do this project or even have this Zoom meeting for work. Keep, try to, as best as you're able, keep your Sundays free from the have-tos. We'll dig deeper on this in chapters 13 and 14. And I know that not all of us have the luxury of a Monday through Friday 9 to 5 job. Sundays are sometimes required, and of course, things come up, but it is often said that Sunday morning worship is a Saturday night decision. Now, obviously, we meet here on Sunday afternoons, not on Sunday mornings, but the point is, is that when we prioritize the gathering of God's people as the focal point from which the rest of our, not only our weekend, but our week fits around, then that is the focal point, not, all right, this weekend or next weekend, 
I'm so excited about this weekend for that reason. And then if we have time or energy, then we can gather with God's people. No, gathering with God's people is actually the focal point. And then we make decisions about the rest of our weekend around that. More to come on the Sabbath. But Jesus here is changing it. He is transforming it. He is fulfilling it. He is the Lord of the Sabbath, and he is doing good with God's people and for God's people here. Jesus, for 33 years, worked tirelessly. He built things out of wood with his hands, out of service or as a service to others. He learned the scriptures and meditated on them day and night. He obeyed and delighted in the will of the Father without one moment of rest. Yes, moments and even evenings and 40 days at a time where he would go to be with God and to receive with God, but never just, you know what, it's been a hard week. I'm going to take an evening for myself and do what I want to do. Never one moment in Jesus' life. He spent his hours and his days with the poor and teaching his disciples. And then, and then, he rolled up his sleeves, he turned his face to Jerusalem, and he went to work. He went willingly to a place of public mockery and shame. He endured flogging and beating. He was hung on a cross to suffocate. He received the good and just wrath of God that should have been pointed toward me. And then in all of that, his creative work of salvation for you and for me now being complete in Sabbath rest, rest he exhaled and he said, it is finished. And he died. His work is complete. So that we too, because of Jesus' work on our behalf, now finally and eternally, might not only sing, but then embody Jesus I am resting, resting in the joy of what you are. I am finding out the greatness of your loving heart. This is now the work of the Christian, not to keep ourselves in covenant by our works, but because of what Jesus has done for us on our behalf in his death and in his glorious resurrection, in his ascension, to validate and to prove that he is indeed not only the Lord of the Sabbath, but Lord of the cosmos, Lord of each and every one of our small lives, whether we acknowledge it or not, now for the rest of our lives, our work is to know Jesus more and more, to love God with passion, to love our neighbor with compassion, to walk in his ways and to become his disciples more and more each day to find out the greatness of his loving heart that has brought us into a new covenant of his blood that keeps us in a new covenant of his love. And yet, in light of all of this, in light of this new and amazing power and authority that Jesus is showing here, those who still have the taste of the old wine, those who are still really committed to having a pager on their belt, in response to all that, to the love and the power of Jesus in verse 11, they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. This makes no sense. It is irrational, and it is this condition of all of our hearts that sees the love and power and grace and glory of Jesus and still wants to reject him. So let me close with the words of Hebrews 3, where the author of that great letter says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness 
where your fathers put me to the test, God says, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And so the author says, take care, brothers. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But instead, exhort one another every day. Challenge, encourage, confront, comfort one another every day, as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm unto the end. Might it be so. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for your grace to us, for your patience, your compassion, and your mercy. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you are not just the Lord of a day, not just the Lord of the Sabbath, not just the Lord of our rest, but the Lord of all things, maker of heaven and earth, and you are holding the universe together by the word of your power. We praise you. You are indeed a matchless king. In spirit, we are so thankful that you have come to dwell within us, that we might walk with you, walking by the Spirit to know God, to make known God. We pray, Lord, that we would follow more closely in your footsteps, learning what it is to be a Christian, learning more deeply what it is to have your heart, to be united to you, hidden away in Christ. We pray by your word, by your spirit, by the words of your people, that we might more closely know you and follow you as your people, your disciples, just as we've seen in the last three weeks, that in your power and glory, you are then calling disciples, calling people to follow you. Might we follow you? Might we invite others to follow you along with us? The Good Shepherd. We trust you and we love you. Keep us near, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.